Hello and welcome to Grimdark History where we take a deep dive into the actual eras of history that historical fiction takes place in. Uh, we take a look at the uh, kind of nitty-gritty details with a grimdark tone uh, to understand the realities uh, of the places and times that these places set themselves in. If you're just tuning in, this is uh, episode three of a three-part series on Copper Age Anatolia and the birthplace of the Emperor of Mankind of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. In episode one of this series, uh, we took a look at the story of Otzi, who was a Copper Age man who lived in the Italian Alps uh, between 3340 BCE and 3100 BCE. Uh, we lived through a fictional retelling of his last days, uh, exploring the tools that he used, um, what he ate, how he lived, what he wore, what life was like for somebody in his time. We also learned uh, that his ancestors came from Neolithic Age Anatolia. In episode two, we took a look at a lar the larger world of the Copper Age, uh, major climate events that were taking a place on Earth, uh, you know, in geologically recent history around uh, 4,000 uh, to 3,000 uh, BCE. We discussed uh, trade, the sharing of culture, what do the births of civilizations look and feel like, how knowledge and technology spreads uh, between neighboring villages, the types of people that lived in uh, Europe and North Africa and the uh, uh, Near East and Asia Minor, uh, which is uh, Turkey, modern day Turkey, um, or you know the topic of what we're calling on Anatolia, uh, just another name for the same place. We also discussed um, early warfare, what that might have looked like, what law looked like. We took a closer look at the Varna civilization who were systematically destroyed through a combination of warfare and climate events. And lastly, we took uh, a look at the early Mesopotamia region and what was called the Uruk period. And this is where the first city-states are taking shape and beginning to militarily dominate their neighbors. And, uh, you know, when we went through those episodes, we said we were going to tie everything back to the God Emperor of Mankind uh, and Warhammer 40,000 uh, universe. And we're going to do that in this episode. Uh, we didn't just touch on those for color. Those were important episodes, and you know, if you don't want to go back to them, I've just summarized important parts, and as we get to those in this episode, we'll also bring those up again. Uh, but if you want more details on those, uh, go back to our first two episodes in this series.
two men cry out in a forgotten age. The roar of the slayer harmonizes with the scream of the slain. In this earliest epic, when humankind still fears spirits of fire and prays to false gods for the sun to rise, the murder of a brother is the darkest of deeds. Blood marks the man's face, just as it marks the spear in his clenched fists and the rocks beneath his brother's body. The wound gouts and sprays, the man tastes the red wine of his brother's veins, feeling the blood's heat where it lands on his bearded skin, tasting of metals yet undiscovered and seas yet unseen. As the hot salt of spilt life burns his tongue, the man knows with impossible clarity, he is the first. What you just heard was the opening paragraphs of Aaron Dempsey Bowden's uh, excellent novel, The Master of Mankind, from the Warhammer 40,000 Horus Heresy series. This novel is the main focus of this episode in the series. Spoiler alert, as we go through this episode, uh, we are going to be quoting heavily from the first uh, two or three chapters of the Master of Mankind novel uh, from the Warhammer 40k Horus Heresy series. We're not going to be giving away any significant uh, plot points or characters uh, within this novel. So if you haven't read it yet, uh, you should. It's an amazing novel. Um, but if you haven't read it yet, I, I don't think this podcast episode is going to spoil anything uh, significant for you. Uh, the quotes I'm drawing from, uh, again, just draw heavily in the first couple chapters. And we are focused, laser-locked focused, on just the parts of the text that discuss uh, the historical period of the Emperor's uh, childbirth era. Um, so uh, just a warning going into this. Um, now another thing I had to think about heavily uh, about this, and it's one of the reasons why it's taken me so long to get this content together, is I, I don't want this to sound uh, like it's just a, an essay. You know, where I uh, spit off a bunch of facts, spit off a bunch of quotes, uh, we have a thesis, uh, you know, we use our quotes to prove something and we draw a conclusion and, and then I walk away. I don't think that's very uh, interesting or exciting. Um, so uh, what I thought would be maybe more interesting is a little game of kind of who, what, where, when and why. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, the best way to start this and, and have it be a, a little bit of a game you and I play together is uh, we're going to start with uh, when are we? And we've got a few clues uh, that we can pull out of the text of the Master of Mankind uh, that tell us when we are. And we're going to go through those uh, right now, just you know, a little bit at a time, and then once we've gone through that, um, we're gonna have a very reasonable idea of when we are in time. 
So I, I think we should start off with uh, the fact that um, we are, and when I say we, the royal we, I'm talking about the emperor of mankind we, and us inhabiting his time and space and his people in this village. We are speaking Proto-Indo-European Hittite, uh, what he calls Proto-Hittite. Uh, so uh, the Hittite people, uh, they will become the dominant force in this area in about a thousand years time. Um, but before that happens, you know, there's just some people there. And now he says that they speak Proto-Indo-European dialect that will become a precursor to Hittite. It is a precursor to Hittite. And, and I'll just give you that quote now um, so we can kind of understand where I'm coming from and, and we'll go from there. Quote, Others came running. They shouted. They cried. They made the noises of language that spoke of panic and sorrow in a proto-Indo-European tongue that would become known as an early precursor to the Hittite dialect. End quote. So uh, we can get from that that they're not speaking Hittite. They're speaking an early precursor to this language of Hittite. Um, so nobody identifies themselves as a Hittite people. We also know what he's saying is they're speaking a dialect of Proto-Indo-European. So that tells us uh, his ancestors were Proto-Indo-Europeans and they've moved into this area and they're speaking the language that will eventually become Hittite in a thousand years time. So we've got a really good idea of, of uh, you know, culturally who they are and, I'll, and I'm going to dig into that in a moment. And uh, we've got something that gives us a little bit of a time. They're speaking something that's not Proto-Indo-European, and it's not quite Hittite that it's going to be, you know, in a roughly thousand years time or so. The next piece of clue we have is the murder weapon that his uncle used to kill his father. Quote, you killed him. The custodian said without judgment. Yes, he struck my father from behind with a piece of sharpened bronze, too poorly made to even be called a knife. End quote. So that tells us that there's some bronze there. Um, however, uh, it's so rough, the knowledge of how to properly either smelt it or shape it or work it doesn't exist yet. It's still being developed by the people here. Now you could say, well, well, maybe they traded for it. Maybe they did, but you know, you think if uh, you know a trader was bringing a bronze knife, it would look and feel more like a knife. Um, you know, uh, even a flint knife at this time looks like a knife. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been talking about the Copper Age. Uh, Copper Age knives 
look like knives. This thing is so rough, it barely qualifies as a knife. So I, I think it's probably not likely they traded for a bronze knife. They may have traded for a, a bronze hunk of metal, which was worked uh, by them in the village, someone. And uh, that would indicate that, you know, they're, they're not skilled enough with it. So if this is kind of, you know, Bronze Age starts in different parts of the world at different times as the knowledge spreads. Remember, I talked about the spread of knowledge and technology in my last episode. So we would say here that probably not likely that they traded for this uh, a fully formed bronze knife, that someone in the village is a metal worker and they're trying to figure out how to uh, heat and shape and, and work bronze as they would copper or, or tin or other softer metals that they're used to working with. So based on this, we've got a good idea. We know they're, um, you know, very early Bronze Age. We know that they're uh, speaking something that's halfway between Proto-Indo-European and Hittite. So we've, we've got some pieces of information right now about where, or pardon me, about when we are. Now, I know I said we've got three pieces of information that tell us about when we are. I'm not going to touch on that third piece just yet, uh, because that piece is really more uh, unreliable. It's my being a nerdy fanboy, uh, wish, wishful thinking of it. And Aaron Dembski-Bowden, if you're listening to this, I would very much love to know if my theory that I'm going to talk about in a little bit is right. Uh, but before I get to that, we're going to take these two pieces of information and figure out when we are within, you know, a few hundred years time period. Uh, you know, Aaron Dembski Bowden, he, you know, if you read the afterword in Master of Mankind, he kind of very clearly states that he wrote the Emperor as being somebody who's unreliable. You could take him at his word or not. Um, maybe he's saying what he's not, maybe he is, but we're going to take what he's saying as truth and we're going to extrapolate from there and see what we can get. So we know his ancestors were Proto-Indo-Europeans and we know he's speaking an early precursor to Hittite. Based on that, we can get a really good lock about where he is. So before we get uh, you know, when he is, we're going to talk about his ancestors, the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Now, there's still uh, a little bit uh, up in the air in, you know, uh, ancient history and, and uh, genetic analysis about exactly who the Proto-Indo-Europeans were and where geographically they were. But right now, the most agreed upon uh, theory about who the Proto-Indo-Europeans were and where they came from was what's called uh, an area just called the Pontic Steppes. That's uh, the northern 
area of the Black Sea, uh, modern-day Ukraine and Russia and uh, Romania and the surrounding areas over there all the way over to the Balkan Mountains uh, on the other side of Turkey going into basically uh, northern uh, Iran so it's a, it's a, a massive uh, area and, and it's mostly plains area it's called steppes s-t-e-p-p-e -E. um, and you if you want to think about steppes it's where Mongolians uh, came from if you go way east along the steppes you're on the Mongolian steppes the Siberian steppes uh, a nice way to think about the steppes is it's a massive grassland it's impossibly massive to imagine it it you know you, you can't really cross it uh, unless you've got horses uh, it would take you forever to cross it and, and it's a large open plains area broken up with uh, some forests once in a while it's extremely rare in most of the steppe area though uh, there's some little uh, minor valleys little teeny dips you'll get some lakes once in a while ponds and some forest area uh, but it's mostly flat open plains and the proto and the proto-indo-europeans were what we would call uh, steppe herders nomadic steppe herders and what that means is um, they moved a nomadic you know nomadic tribal life there were small groups of them uh, they would uh, have massive uh, herds of animals and the animals they herded were cattle oxen goats and sheep and horses these people are amongst the first people in the world to be using horses and they're also amongst the first people in the world to be using wagons and I know that doesn't seem so crazy um, but it's uh, you know a mind-blowing invention when instead of walking your herd of animals everywhere and when you're living in a giant uh, ocean-sized plains that you can just pack up all your belongings in a wagon tie your uh, oxen to it and you know you get 20 30 of these people in their wagons with all their belongings and their families you'll get um, you know a dozen or so of these people might have two or three wagons per household carry all their stuff plus their family you could have uh, dozens maybe hundreds of wagons if you've got a really large tribal group and they would have a massive herd of animals that they would look after and they would um, graze in one area of the plains and then when that's done they would move to another area of the plains and then when winter comes and it's really bitingly cold they would go to those wooded valley regions where they can chop wood for fire and keep themselves warm all winter and that might seem like it's a kind of a, a nice fuzzy life 
but if you remember in my last episode we talked about um, you know the early rise of civilizations and we talked about the Varna culture who were in uh, Romania on the coast of the Black Sea they're on the western coast of the Black Sea just northwest of of uh, Anatolia those culture that culture around the year 4000 was the richest culture in the world at that time they had mined more gold than all the other cultures on earth put together that's how rich the Varna culture was well the proto-indo-europeans and, and instead of calling them proto-indo-europeans i'm going to call them the yamnaya culture uh, that's uh, another term that we're using for that same group of people that that's who we think the proto-indo-europeans were the yamnaya culture now if you'll remember the varna culture when i was talking about how they met their end is a combination of flooding in the black sea and somebody destroyed all their settlements you remember that episode I was talking about the 300 pound gorilla with the axe and how the Varna culture got the bad end of that that was the Yamnaya people we talked about warfare and trade and how if somebody wanted your stuff the only thing that kept them from taking your stuff was the 300 pound gorilla in the in the village with an axe well the Yamnaya culture um, they're not just you know uh, step herders in their wagons moving their families and their herds from field to field they have a warrior culture developing in them and that warrior culture has been there for thousands of years as far as we know uh, because there's examples of that warrior culture causing um, raids everywhere and I when I say everywhere everywhere in Europe uh, now I'm gonna mess up the term uh, forgive me if anybody who's studying this uh, but I believe the term is called choreos or very something similarly to that line uh, but effectively what they believe they do uh, based on uh, the history that they can put piece together from nations all over the world from Russia to India to Pakistan uh, through Europe through Turkey is the Yamnaya cultures um, when they have too many people in their village in their groups to feed everybody they'll take the youngest men who aren't married who don't have children so you would think that these are probably teenagers maybe a little younger and they would get big groups of them together you get a spear you get a horse if you're lucky you get a horse but you get your spear you get your furs and as a group 2030 strong you go to the edge of the steps where places like Anatolia are where the Yamnaya culture 
is where all the other cultures in uh, Eastern Europe are and they're all farmers and the Yemnaya people they have uh, an amazing advantage over these farmers the Yemnaya people have a diet uh, that lets them drink milk all the time now uh, because they drink milk uh, right into their adulthood uh, because their diet is mostly of meat because they have large herds of animals Yamnaya people are giants compared to everybody else in Europe at this time they're taller they're stronger their bones are thicker and they know this because every time they dig up a Yemnaya tomb a burial ground the skulls the bones are just it's like uh, looking at a father and a child and I'm exaggerating that but you get the idea Yemnaya people were huge compared to the European farmers everywhere in the world at this time because their diet was significantly higher in protein they grew taller they grew stronger their bones were stronger and that let them uh, gave them a huge advantage in warfare and most of these people are farmers so when the 30 40 strong group of giant teenagers come into your town and they're all armed with spears and copper axes or knives well maybe you kill a few people you take some women for slaves to be your wives you take whatever food they have whatever goods they have and then you move on to the next one and you leave a swath of destruction as you do this and you may send you know little communications back little riders go back to your home group to say hey we're being successful here here's some of our loot we've got send us more stuff more people uh, and then more people will leave the main group and go to that little branch group and maybe that branch group will keep on trucking into Europe somewhere maybe through the Yamnaya or pardon me through the Varna people and all their settlements who are loaded down with gold so you can see that might makes right this is uh, part of the Yamnaya culture's method of expansion they're not all like that uh, the Yamnaya culture expands in waves some of it is these raiding groups that go out into these areas and destroy villages take their goods take their food take slaves take uh, wives and when I say wives I mean enforced sexual slavery and then they have children and then they start a new clan a new group and that group has some mixture of proto-indo-european or Yamnaya culture in them and some of the genetics of the local group that's there and you can imagine this spreading and, and as the Yamnaya groups in the periphery become larger and more successful uh, 
in the Yamnaya groups in the steppe uh, get too large to be sustained by the pastors that are there. They leave their groups and migrate out to the ones on the periphery. So you can imagine waves of people from the Yamnaya coming out uh, into Europe and, A and Asia, Anatolia specifically. There's some warfare, the, and the warfare at times leads to the destruction of villages and in some cases civilizations. And then there are groups of you know older people, less, less violent. Um, they've already got families uh, and their herds. They've got all the wealth they need. They just want a place to settle down where they can have some food and not have to worry about starving. Now these Yamnaya people, the wave that I'm talking about, the one that is the ancestors of the emperor of mankind, they come down through the western edge of the Black Sea coast, through Ukraine, through Romania, through Bulgaria, and some of them branch off and they settle in Croatia and in that area. Some of them branch off and they go to Greece and that area and some of them branch off and they go into Anatolia in that area. So the Proto-Indo-Europeans, the Yamnaya people, they come to Anatolia through uh, Romania along that edge of the Black Sea coast. So uh, if you're thinking about Turkey, in the Black Sea, uh, they're coming down on the western side of the Black Sea coast, um, in some cases destroying settlements on the way, in some cases just people coming through being friendly traders. And, and then they settle in kind of the northeastern edge of Anatolia around Constantinople uh, and that area pardon me, Istanbul, and, and then they spread south uh, and they spread east through Anatolia. And in some cases, this is violent, you know, and, and in other cases, it's perfectly friendly. So the ancestors of um, the emperor of mankind is this Yamnaya culture. And we know based on the destruction of the Varna civilization, uh, based on the specific uh, Yamnaya skeletons that are found and, and their distinctive burial rituals that they have, we can trace the timeline of that happening. We know the Varna culture is destroyed right around 4000 BCE. Um, so we know the emperor is after that time. And we also know the emperor speaks a, a proto-Hittite dialect of Indo-European. So the Hittites, um, they don't come around till you know 2700 BCE. Proto-Hittite, we know, starts being spoken around 2100. Uh, BCE, before Common Era.
So that puts the timing of the Emperor somewhere between there, but we can get a little closer than that uh, because we know the early Bronze Age in Anatolia. Remember that super rough bronze knife? The early Bronze Age in Anatolia starts between 3000 and 2500 before Common Era. So I think we can say within a few hundred years grace period uh, that our god emperor of mankind is born roughly around 2500 before common era sometime where between 3000 and 2500 before common era now if we're closer to the hittite language um, than than further we're probably you know, on the nearer end of that, closer to 2100 BCE. But we don't have that much information, but I do have another piece of information that makes me think it's closer to 3000, and uh, I'm getting to that next. Because what we've got to right now is the when. This is our timeline. We're in uh, co late Copper Age, early Bronze Age, Anatolia. We're between 3000 and 2500 uh, BCE. Now that we've answered the first of our uh, uh, who, what, where, when, and why uh, game that we're playing, we got an idea of when we are. Uh, we want to try and figure out where we are next. So we don't have a, a whole lot of information about that at all. We, we've got almost nothing. Uh, but we have a couple pieces of information. And uh, we can deduct a little bit from that information. And we're, uh, we have my, my little fanboy theory that I want to touch on uh, at the tail end of this. And you can decide when, or pardon me, where we are. Uh, so we'll start with, uh, you know, what we definitely know uh, from the text here. And we know he lives on the banks of the Sakaria River. Uh, that's direct from the quote. Uh, you know, I'm not going to quote that exact line. It's literally, you know, 10 words. Uh, we live on the banks of, of the Sakaria River. Uh, so, that, you know, um, that river itself it's a gigantic river. It flows through basically half of Anatolia. Uh, and like I told you in the previous episode, Anatolia is a massive landmass. And just so you can understand um, what the climate is like in Anatolia a little bit. Um, so the whole area, you know, the, the southeast end of it, uh, borders the Mediterranean, uh, the northern uh, end of it borders the Black Sea. On the eastern side of that is uh, Syria and uh, northern Iraq uh, and the Balkan Mountains and the uh, surrounding nations there. And on the western side uh, is Greece. And Croatia and those areas there. Uh, 
Uh, now, Anatolia itself, aside from, you know, being sandwiched between Europe and Asia, it is literally sandwiched in terms of continent, continental tectonics. Uh, several tectonic plates uh, collided millions of years ago. Uh, you know, the new, you know, it's been in the recent news, you know, within the last year, they've had uh, several significant earthquakes there. Earthquakes have been going on in that area uh, for uh, millions of years, and it's built up a giant mountainous plateau uh, that covers a massive chunk of Turkey itself. So on the Mediterranean side of that plateau, it's nice, warm, Mediterranean coastal weather. Hot summers, very warm winters, it's wet, it's great. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful Mediterranean life there. Uh, and then you, you go up where the tectonic plates have been colliding and have been building mountains for millions of years. Uh, it's a large, cold, flat plateau. And the plateau life, it's, um, it's extremely varied because it's in a uh, more southerly climate. So the summers are hot and dry because it's up high on a mountain. So uh, the clouds basically dump all the rain before they get there. So not a lot of precipitation makes it up there. Uh, but there are glaciers up there uh, and, uh, you know, they get they get snow. Uh, they get snowy winters, dry summers, and, and the winters are cold, uh, but there's a lot of rivers up there. So uh, the, the Sakaria River, um, one of its major tributaries is from uh, the melt in that region that drains um, through most of Turkey, uh, heading towards the Black Sea. So it's flowing basically from central Turkey uh, up through it, kind of winds a little bit, uh, and then drains into the Black Sea. And he's living somewhere along that place. Uh, now the next piece of information uh, we've got is his location in relative to Babylon. Uh, what's, you know, what what's referred to as the cradle or start of civilization. And I'm going to pull that quote out for you uh, just so we can understand, you know, what we're talking about. Here. Quote, we are not far removed from those beginnings, Ra, either in distance or time. You could walk to the cradle of civilization from here, where men and women made the very first city. When I leave this village, that is where I will go. That journey is coming soon, end quote. So we've got an idea um, that he's somewhere in the region of Babylon. Now, he, say, he says it's walking distance. Uh, I don't think it's walking distance. Uh, it's probably, um, uh, you know, several weeks walking distance, especially if we're going over a rough mountainous plateau. Um, but you get the idea that he's uh, somewhat close to Babylon. Now the reality is the Sakaria River is nowhere close to Babylon, um, so uh, like I said, it's you know splits right through the the center 
of uh, of Turkey. So y y we got something of an idea there. Uh, the next piece of information, it's really the last piece of information, is he talks about um, trading with uh, some coastal traders and i'll give you that little quote and that gives us uh you know a, a rough thing that we're going to try and extrapolate time from here hold on quote the boy who would be king turned the skull over in his hands his voice already distant with distraction i shall barter with the coastal traders that come at high noon i will use shells for my father's eyes end quote so we get an idea from here uh, that there are traders from the coast that come at noontime, midday. So we're, we're somewhere a half day's travel from the coast. Now we can use these pieces of information to actually pull a place uh, out, of, out of this. We know he's on the Sakaria River. We know he is somewhat close to Babylon. Uh, I don't think that that really applies here. It's really he's on the banks of the Sakaria River. And there are coastal traders that come to him at midday. And why I think we can pull a place out of that is because, um, you know, we could assume a couple of things. We have traders from the coast. Now, they could be moving by horse, you know, load all your goods in one of those proto-Indo-European wagons that have been around for a thousand years. This is the, the modern technology for moving goods around. In which case, you know, we've got, you know, a, a range of about 80 kilometers, give or take. You know, a, a horse pulling a wagon it's not running it's just moving around but you know six hours travel in a wagon you can get about 80 kilometers give or take or and here's a the other way to think about it is coastal traders instead of loading all their goods off their boats into wagons and taking that in we're on the banks of the Sakaria River we'll just put our goods in our boat, keep it there, and we'll just sail up the river. Now, one of the things that makes uh, the uh, kingdom of Egypt, that's just starting at this time, so huge and massive, is because the shape of the Nile and its location is uh, extremely advantageous for forming a kingdom along it. And that is because the Nile runs mostly north-south, straight up and down. And the Nile water flow flows from southern Africa into the Mediterranean. So the flow of the current of the Nile pushes boats down the Nile into the Mediterranean where the Nile Delta is. However, the prevailing winds in that area blow from the Mediterranean into the Nile. So that means boats can sail up the Nile 
drop their goods off and coast back down the Nile with the currents and some row oars to row with. And because the Nile is mostly straight, you can do this. You cannot sail uh, outside the wind at this, this time. Uh, that technology does not exist. It's not widely, uh, it doesn't exist at all uh, in this region or in Europe, and it won't for until around 1600 AD when they uh, invent uh, the triangular sail and the rigging that allows boats to navigate uh, against the wind. Uh, so there's only a few places in the world where you can have a long civilization along a waterbed and you can have that kind of trade where boats can sail up one way and then row back the other way and not have to be fighting the current both ways. So Egypt is one of those places and northern Turkey and the Sakarya River is another one of those golden places. The Sakarya River drains from central Turkey uh, into the Black Sea. That's where the current flows. And the prevailing winds from the Black Sea blow in towards Turkey. Now it is, like I said, on a big uh, mountainous plateau. However, the area around the Black Sea is coastal plains, uh, kind of like Nile Delta. So we've got a large flat area that funnels winds in and it allows boats to sail up the Sakarya River to the point where it starts hooking left and right and it would render sails useless. So I think, well, I don't think they have to be on the north coast area of Turkey uh, and that they are a half day travel by boat up the Sakarya River. Uh, now, a half-day travel by boat is roughly 40 kilometers, give or take, a sailboat. Uh, you know, winds could be uh, lower or not. Maybe it, maybe they leave at dawn. Maybe they leave before the break of dawn. Uh, maybe they leave after dawn. You know, there's a lot of variables there. But if we assume, and we're making a lot of assumptions in this episode, if we assume our coastal traders wake up in the morning, uh, they get their boats ready, uh, and then uh, they uh, sail that uh, up the river, trade to the communities there, and then row back down the river with the current at the end of the day when they're done. I'm going to apologize uh, once again to anybody uh, you know, from Turkey or this area that's that's listening, because uh, I am going to probably butcher the pronunciation. Uh, but I think uh, the emperor of mankind is living near modern-day Saragazi. Uh, that's in Turkey. It's about 100 kilometers uh, directly east of Ist of Istanbul, and it's right smack dab on the Sakarya River. And it's in northeastern Anatolia, which is where our Proto-Indo-European uh, precursors of the emperor's ancestors came from. They settled there and they started moving south and east.
So this would put us in a good spot. Uh, we would uh, have an idea. He's on the Sakaria River. He's near the uh, Black Sea coastline, but a half day by sailboat on the river. That would make his summers uh, very similar to, uh, you know, if you're, I'm in Halifax, Canada, we would have almost the exact same um, type of weather in terms of the amount of rainfall we get in terms of the amount of sunshine we get, in terms of our summer, spring, and fall temperatures, the only variance would be winter. Uh, they would actually have a slightly milder winter uh, than we have here in Halifax, Canada. So, um, you know, we would get occasionally minus 20 uh, Celsius uh, temperatures on the coastline. Uh, they would be uh, more along the lines of uh, Victoria, B.C., uh, winters um, maybe a little colder it gets down around freezing maybe dips a little below that on rare occasions but mostly kind of mild so it'd be great place to settle down a great place for farms for animals almost year-round so that's where I think uh, where we are what the text tells us uh, but I was talking earlier about my little fanboy theory and that's what I'm going to bring up now and my fanboy theory um, puts us also closer to the 3000 before common era timeline that I was talking about this is the thing uh, you know if ADB is listening uh, I would love to hear whether or not you like my theory uh, or it's true or maybe it's just wrong that's fine, but I'm going to tell you now because I've got a captive audience. Uh, so my other theory uh, leans more strongly to the uh, other quote I gave you about them being within walking distance of uh, Mesopotamia and the city of Babylon. Now, uh, if we remember back to my uh, previous episode when I talked about traders, and we have trading hubs that people take stuff to and go to. The other theory here is that uh, coastal traders, uh, maybe they're um, not going up the coast every day. Maybe this is only a once a month thing or a once a year thing or once, you know, it's not happening often. If that's the case, then the coastal traders, maybe um, this village is just one stop uh, amongst many villages along the Sakaria River. And the Sakaria River doesn't go east-west against the wind for quite some time. Um, so you can conceivably go a little further up the river. Or if we're still coastal traders, but instead of using the sailboat method, we want to use the horse and cart method. Well, we can have a multi-day travel. and We can get uh, to all sorts of major hubs with our goods. Because there's another place that exists in this time that's uh, very relevant 
to later periods of the Emperor of Mankind. Now, if you recall, the Emperor of Mankind doesn't just show up one time and disappear. He shows up multiple times. He assumes identities. Uh, he does great things, and then he disappears again, popping in and out all through history. Well, in uh, you know a few thousand years' time, the Emperor is going to be in Anatolia again. Only that time, he's there under the identity of Alexander the Great. And one of the things Alexander the Great does as he's conquering the Achaemenid Empire is he stops in the city of Gordian and slices that famous Gordian knot. There's an oracle there. That's what the story tells us. That's what myth, our, our story tells us. But we know he's Alexander. Maybe there's another reason to go to Gordian if you're the god emperor of mankind. Maybe you go to Gordian because in 3000 before Common Era, Gordian was a small village on the Sakaria River that's not too far from the city of Babylon. Maybe he didn't go there just to cut a knot and visit an oracle. Maybe he was seeing home. And we know he's not at all, um, uh, you know, emotionally attached to people in modern times. But maybe back then, he wasn't quite fully disconnected yet. Maybe coming to Gordian as a city, as Alexander the Great, was a bit like uh, going back to your, your hometown after you've been gone for 20, 30 years just to see how the place had changed. That's my fanboy theory, is that we're not really um, you know, 100 kilometers east of Istanbul we're several hundred kilometers um, east of Istanbul. We're actually more southern east of, you know, closer to the central plateau area. We're still on the banks of the Sakarya River. Uh, we're not as close to the coastal region. We're a few hundred kilometers in instead of 40. But the city of Gordian exists. It's not a city then, it's a village. It's been inhabited since around 3000 before Common Era. This is also uh, not just the place where, uh, you know, Alexander the Great goes and cuts his knot. Uh, King Midas, you know, got the Midas touch from uh, Hebrew uh, Bible. He's the king of Gordian and, and the surrounding area. It's called Phrygia at the time. Uh, but he is the king of Gordian. It's called Gordium then, but we're talking about Gordian, the Gordian Knot, and it's on the Sakaria River, and it's been inhabited since 3000 before Common Era. Uh, so I think that's a fun found boy alternate location for where the Emperor of Mankind was born. Now that we have uh, the when and the where, 
uh, let's focus upon the, the who. And we know we're talking about the emperor of mankind. Again, we're talking about the greater who, the royal we. You know, who are his people? Now, we know, I talked about earlier, his people, his ancestors, were Proto-Indo-Europeans. The Yamnaya culture is who we think they were. Now, one of the things we know about the Yamnaya culture is they um, had a unique uh, trait that nobody else in Europe or Asia had at that time. Uh, that trait enabled them uh, to drink milk well into adulthood. And because of that, and because of their high-protein diets, they were uh, giants compared to everybody else. They were much larger people, stronger muscles, uh, more muscles, stronger bones, taller people. So this trait, it's called lactase persistence. So uh, knowingly or unknowingly, Aaron uh, Dembski-Bowden has definitively answered the question about whether or not the emperor of mankind can drink milk. And remember, back to my first episode, we did the story of Otzi, who lived around 3100 BCE in the Italian Alps. He is not of Proto-Indo-European stock. He's of uh, Anatolian farmer stock, and I'm about to talk about them. Uh, but those people are lactose intolerant. Uh, so they can stop digesting milk roughly around the age of eight. After that time, everybody's basically lactose intolerant. But even then, it doesn't really stop people from drinking milk as much as everybody likes to think it does. Uh, what you can do, and what was probably done, is when you take your milk out of an animal and you stuff it in a uh, fresh bladder from uh, a cattle, a cow, that bladder has the enzymes for digesting milk. And if it's fresh enough, those enzymes haven't all been destroyed yet. So milk can be digested by getting the enzymes from other animals from their organs. This is also how cheese is discovered. But regardless of that, we know the Yamnaya culture had uh, lactase persistence and we know the emperor, being an ancestor of those people, uh, very, very likely has lactase persistence as well. So that, ans that answers uh, that little meme that's been floating around for a few years. Um, so ADB, there we go, whether intentionally or not. And uh, having listened to uh, several of his interviews, I think he's a very intentional person. Uh, so he's probably agonized uh, more over these few paragraphs that I've discussed than I have. So I think everything that I'm talking about, he is very intentionally thought about, agonized about, edited, re-edited, changed, and redone. So I think he snuck this in here just to answer the question and has left it to see if anybody notices it. Now, the 
Yemniah people that moved in here, these proto-Hittites. They're not the only people in this area. You know, I talked about the Anatolian farmers whose Neolithic ancestors, um, some of them moved out and into Europe. That's where Otzi came in, episode one. But those people are still around. Those people occupy the place already. And uh, we don't know too, too much about them because, again, we're in prehistory time. But there are at least three other civilizations living in Anatolia at this time. Along the Mediterranean coast of Anatolia, that's where the city of Troy is. And the city of Troy exists at this time. It's um, you know, if you do any research into the, the history of the city of Troy, it's one of those places uh, that's built, destroyed, built, destroyed, built, destroyed, you know, there, multiple times. And every time it gets destroyed, people go in and they build on top of the, the ruins and there's a new Troy. Sometimes it's a bigger, better Troy. Sometimes it's a smaller Troy, uh, but it's there. And today, or sorry, when I'm talking about today, we're talking about 3,000 uh, and 2,500 BCE. Troy exists. It's the first Troy. hasn't been destroyed yet. But that Troy uh, is a small village uh, that has a significant limestone fortification around it. That tells us that that area is seeing enough warfare uh, that people need stone walls to protect themselves from the raiders. Maybe it's, um, you know, still remnants, waves of Yamnaya people coming in. Maybe it's other people coming in. But there is enough warfare in that area, enough raiding for them to be concerned enough to invest the time and effort required to mine a, a limestone and um, mortar it, carve it together, and build walls, fortifications out of that. So there's people living there. And in the rest of Anatolia, the people uh, that the Proto-Indo-Europeans, the emperor's ancestors, are, are pushing out those people are called the Hattians, the Hattites. There's another people called the Hurrians living uh, also in that area. But I'm talking uh, specifically about the Hattites or the Hattians or Hashans. Again, apologies if I'm pronouncing things wrong. Those people um, and the Proto-Indo-Europeans, those people actually merged cultures over this thousand-year period where the Hittites are starting to be formed. Uh, they form out of the merging of these two people. And some of it's, remember I talked about the Koryos, uh, Proto-Indo-European, uh, young tribal warfare people that kind of go out and forcibly uh, start a new community. And then the waves that might follow that would be slightly more peaceful people integrating with communities. 
as people settle down and become uh, settled farmers, like the emperor's villages, you know, there's no warfare there. He talks specifically about the fact that there are no weapons in the village other than that bronze knife that was used to kill uh, his father. They're not concerned about defense or being attacked, even though a few hundred kilometers to the east, or pardon me, a few hundred kilometers to the west is the city of Troy that is very much concerned about being uh, attacked and destroyed. His village is living a life of relative peace. That tells us that they have peaceful relations with their uh, Hattian neighbors. Now, the language, the Proto-Indo-European European language, merges with the Hattian language and kind of develops on its own way, and that actually becomes the Hittite language in a few hundred years. And the Hittite people, even though they dominate the Hattians and the Hurrians, they keep all the place names for um, the, the regions and areas and cities and villages uh, that the Hattians ha had already had for everything in Anatolia at that time. You know, they, they don't just invade and say, okay, city of Gordian, we're renaming that uh, to city uh, of Michael. I, I don't like the name of Sakaria River. We're going to call it the York River. No, they keep all those names. Uh, another thing they do is they integrate with the religion, which is really kind of cool. Uh, you know, when I talked about last episode, the spread of religion and ideas and words and how they merge together. You can militarily dominate somebody and uh, uh, basically they have to uh, uh, absorb your words, your language, your religion or you can peacefully integrate with them and it's more of a melting pot where instead of your culture displaces theirs, their culture mixes with your culture and you get a little from column A and a little from column B and something new comes out of that. And what that new thing is, it's uh, the Hittite civilization in a few hundred years. Now, religion at the time were um, melding religions at this period. So we know a little bit about the Proto-Indo-European European religion, and we know a little bit about what the Hittite religion is. So the emperor of mankind's religious practices at this time in his village is somewhere in between these two things that I'm about to talk about. So the Yamnaya culture, they had uh, just a few main gods. And I may, again, massacred pronunciations, apologies. But they believed in a god called Deus, who was their uh, sun god, their, their daylight, their sky god. Pardon me, not sun god. He was the god of the sky. And I called him Deus. Sounds a lot like Deus, which is Latin for God. Also sounds a lot like Zeus. If we were 
speaking the Greece tongue, we wouldn't call him uh, Zeus, we would call him Zeus. There's also the earth goddess, the mother goddess, called uh, Dagon. There's the goddess of the dawn, called uh, Huzos. And there is also uh, two twins, the thunderer god, the god of thunder, and the sun goddess, Sund. And there is also uh, a dragon or serpent. You know, when we think of Norse mythology, you have Jormagundr, the world serpent. And in other mythologies, there are similar, uh, you know, spirits or monsters or world-ending demons. You know, some kind of giant dragon or serpent. And in the religion of these people, the Thunderer and the Sun Goddess, they're twins. And they kill, uh, one of the twins is slain, and the other one kills the serpent, and that bursts the world. That's as much as we kind of uh, generally understand about the religion. I'm sure there's more deeper information about that out there. Now the Hittites, who he's becoming, they had similar gods, but they were also adopting the gods of the Babylonians. Um, and, well, the early Babylonians, remember I talked about the Uruk period and how trading was happening between Anatolia and what would become Mesopotamia. It wasn't just um, you know, metals and goods being traded, it's culture and religion that's being traded. And I talked about how at the time there wasn't really a unifying uh, mythology of gods in these areas. It was the god of the city. The uh, Proto-Indo-Europeans, there was no such thing as a god of the city. There was, that was their uh, mythology and their gods there was just that group. Well, uh, the Hittites, they will adopt a little from column A and a little from column B. And um, when they start digging up Hittite cities and they find Hittite texts, they will see there are some places where cities have dozens of gods in them and other ones where uh, it's not the case at all. Now, where uh, there isn't a city, where it's just a small village, not really big enough for a temple. Uh, you remember I talked about in the Uruk period, there is a god who inhabits a relic inside the temple. In uh, the Hittites, they have a very similar mythology where there will be uh, mystical stones in the village that are the God's um, representation in earth, in, on earth that people can go and pray to and it will protect the village. Now, well, you may have heard of the, the goddess named Ishtar. If you haven't, that's a major Mesopotamian goddess. It's the goddess of a city. And she becomes one of the major goddesses in the Hittite mythology. She displaces the dawn goddess and becomes her own thing here.
Now, why I'm talking about that now is because we're just about to talk about the little pieces of information that we have uh, that the emperor talks about his own religion. So we can build the who uh, and understand a little bit, um, you know, what was the religion as we understood it of the Proto-Indo-Europeans and what is the religion as we understood it of the Hittite people that he's becoming. And we're going to compare that to what's in the book and just understand a little bit about where uh, ADB, uh, and when I say ADB, sorry, Aaron Dembski Bowden, talking to him like he's my best friend, uh, where Aaron Dembski Bowden uh, may have not let the facts get in the way of a good story. So let's talk about that now. The boy who would be king held his father's skull in his hands. He turned it slowly, running his fingertips across the contours of skinless bone, a thumb still browned with field dirt traced across the blunt ivory pegs of the gap-tooth death smile. He lifted his eyes to the stone shelf where other skulls sat in silent vigil. They stared into the hut's gloomy confines, their eyes replaced by smooth stones, their faces restored with the crude artistry of clay. It was the boy's place to remake his father's face in the same way, sculpting the familiar features with wet mud and slow swipes of a flint knife, then letting the skull bake dry in the high sun. The boy thought he might use seashells for the eyes, if he could barter with the coastal traders for two that were smooth enough. He would do this soon. Such things were tradition. So uh, we can hear from this quote that uh, part of their burial practices was to deflesh the skull of the person and either the next of kin or the oldest male heir for the household had the responsibility to take this skull of their parent and work clay onto it and try to rebuild the likeness of that person and then they kept it in the in the house on the shelf presumably with their other ancestors Now, it's interesting when you think about that, if you know uh, a little bit about some other ancient histories, there are other civilizations that do similar things. The ancient Egyptians, they uh, built death masks for uh, important people, the pharaohs, uh, the nobles, uh, high-ranking religious officials. You know, when you think about the tombs of the pharaohs and you the sarcophagus, and inside the sarcophagus is the mummy, uh, but on top of the mummy is the death mask, which is a molded um, likeness of that person done in a precious metal um, of some kind. Egyptians, or pardon me, not Egyptians, Romans, did something um, less extravagant, but very similar. Romans would take um, the dead body of their um, significant male figures 
and they would create a ceramic um, or wax likeness, pardon me, likeness of that body. They would normally do that in life, uh, so uh, and and then they would store that on the wall in their villas in their homes. So you basically have a family tree of your ancestral faces um, in the homes of Roman villas of their noble people, of all their important ancestors. Now, if you uh, recall earlier when I was talking about the city of Troy that still existed, for some of you who don't know, the city, well, Romans, the, uh, the Romans themselves, they believe that their ancestors came from the city of Troy after it was destroyed in uh, the Trojan War. So uh, one of the uh, people that escape um, from Troy as it's being sacked and burned by all the Greeks is a fellow by the name of Aeneas. Uh, so he escapes uh, with a bunch of families and people and he leads them into Italy where they settle and uh, eventually their descendants found the city of Rome. So it's kind of neat Again, I think this is uh, Aaron Dembski-Bowden uh, being very intentionable, intentionable about the details he's adding in here. Um, now, uh, almost certainly um, the people who just, uh, escaped Troy, if, if anybody, during its destructions, uh, does not uh, migrate and to Italy and become Romans. Um, the Latin tribe um, has been there for a long, long time. Uh, that's just their own starter mythology. Uh, it's actually uh, the whole thing's actually written uh, in celebration of Emperor Augustus, uh, who's just uh, looking for a way to uh, have his own glory be uh, displayed. So he commissions uh, the I think uh, you know the Trojan War and the whole myth about the uh, Aeneas and the Aeneid, and uh, so that's all comes about. It's just you know it's all made up stuff, which is fine. Uh, but it's a fun little fact because I think um, what Aaron Dembski Bowden is suggesting is that the people on the Mediterranean coast of Anatolia are also um, the same. A Proto-Indo-European pre-Hittite people that uh, the emperor is in his village. Uh, now Troy is nowhere near the Sicaria River. Um, it's not on the banks of the Sicaria River. It's on the banks of the Mediterranean. Uh, but it's a neat thing uh, when you think about uh, a little bit of continuity being played with here. Um, Aaron Desky-Bowden knows the story of Troy uh, definitely probably well definitely knows uh, Aeneas the story of Aeneas leaving to found Rome and the Roman people doing death mass um, you know uh, of their uh, ancestors so he's suggesting uh, that what the emperor is doing that culture is around um, that that uh, funeral ritual and uh, that bleeds in to the Trojan people uh, the reality is the uh, um, you know the time when uh, 
Troy of the Trojan War is happening. Uh, that time is quite a ways away from where we're at now with the, the Emperor. And uh, we know from the records that we can find during the Hittite period, that's actually when Troy is destroyed um, in terms of the Trojan War period. Um, those people are not Hittites. Um, they're a separate people. They're one of those client states uh, that I told you about in my previous episode. Um, there's records from the Hittite kings uh, about the uh, people who live in Troy asking them for help in war and uh, they just can't be bothered with it because they're not Hittite people. Um, it's not an important city to them. So they just let it go. They don't care. Uh, we'll, they'll get my tribute from somewhere else. Uh, but that's just a neat little tangent uh, about the city of Troy, uh, the death mass that the emperor is doing as part of his funeral rites, and that the theory of that culture being uh, also spread to the city of Troy. And then when Troy is destroyed and Aeneas leaves with uh, you know Trojan refugees and they settle in Ro in Rome or pardon me, they settle in Italy and then their descendants form the Latin tribe that uh, eventually forms the city of Rome and the Romans maintain this ritual of a funeral mask or a death mask of their significant ancestors. So it's a neat little uh, tangent we, we went off of, uh, but uh, let's get back to the, the Emperor of Mankind. I did just want to call that out because uh, I think that's a neat little thing that uh, Aaron Dembski-Bowden did there. The uh, Mycenaean Greeks also did uh, built uh, death masks as well. And the uh, uh, that's not too removed from this period. It's actually basically the same time frame. Uh, the Mycenaean Greeks are around at this time. Uh, so they would be doing something similar too. Uh, only they're building death masks. They're not taking whole skulls. Uh, now, when I talked earlier about how I felt um, Aaron Dembski-Bowden did a significant amount of research um, for this and probably agonized about things, um, re-edited them a few times and put details in there that probably nobody's going to know about it unless they're digging into it like I'm digging into it. Aaron Dembski-Bowden definitely read articles or talk to people who are knowledgeable about Hittite burial practices. And why I say that is not because um, there's um, evidence of clay masks from dead people. Uh, this is where I think he didn't let uh, the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, but what they do know, what we do know about Hittite burial practices is uh, the skull of the person is often um, seems to have more significance than the body. So uh, uh, in some cases, um, people are just uh, cremated. In some cases, um, they're buried in pit graves. In some cases, they're buried in uh, what looks to be uh, sacred cave systems. But it's usually um, the uh, heads 
are buried separately from the bodies. And along with those bodies, the, the heads of horses, of pigs, of cattle, of goats, of dogs are buried with those people too. Some of them are very densely packed. Uh, when I say densely packed, I mean lots of dead bodies are put in there. Uh, in some cases, they will uh, destroy the urns that hold the remains of people and shove them deeper into the caves in order to make room for new bodies that need to be in there. Now that might seem sacrilegious to us, but it suggests probably to these people, to the um, what's going to be the ancestors, or the, or pardon me, what, what's going to be the future generations of the emperor's people, it indicates that the body is just a vessel and the head is this important part and the head is kept separate from the body and later on the head is buried off sometimes separate from the body so i think aaron dembski bowden read this and said well geez why why are they burying heads separate from bodies well, the head has some kind of significant religious importance to them in death. And then he probably thought about Egyptian death mass, uh, about Mycenaean death mass, about Roman death masks, and thought we can make something uh, similar to that. And uh, we'll, we'll just take the head of the person, the loved one, we'll remove its flesh, it's just a skull, and then somebody will take some clay, the next of kin, somebody who knows what the person looks like, and uses the clay around the skull, lets it dry in the sun, and then they keep it on their shelves, and that's their ancestors uh, there kept with them. Now, we don't really have any evidence that the Proto-Indo-Europeans -Indo did this. They buried their bodies whole. They put them in pit graves. They didn't really do uh, any sort of cremation. People were buried whole, oftentimes uh, in the fetal position facing the rising sun. So ADB, Aaron Dempsey Bowden, he's taking um, you know artistic license with this never you know who's gonna know this detail aside from me because I looked for it um, you know uh, this is you know he's come up with a neat little way for uh, the Emperor of mankind to hold the skull of his father in his hand and have a little uh, um, uh, moment a Shakespearean moment where he communes with the dead skull of his friend his father alas poor Yorick I knew him well and then psychically knows uh, what happened to him his uncle murdered him with a, a rough bronze knife uh, and he needs to uh, get justice so that's a little bit about what we know about the religion of the proto-indo-europeans the Yamnaya people and a little bit about what we know about the religion of the Hittites, who the emperor's people are becoming. Uh, and there's, 
there's not a really whole lot of a mixture between that uh, that we see in the in Master of Mankind. It's a little bit more artistic license on the Hittite religious practices. There doesn't seem to be any sort of priest in the village um, that we're aware of. There's not mentioned in, in Hittite culture. There are priest kings. So religion is extremely important as that culture, um, like Egyptian kings are the heads of the religion. Well, not the heads of the religion, but, you know, embodiments of the religion. There's no evidence of that in Master of Mankind. Everybody just seems to do their own spiritual thing. And ancestor worship seems to be the, the primary practice here. Now, the last part that I want to touch on is uh, the why. Now, I know I said we're playing the game of who, what, where, when, and why. Uh, we don't need to do the what. The what is the master of mankind. It's, um, you know, this era. The why is interesting uh, because the why is a little bit more uh, esoteric. Uh, it's a little bit more touchy-feely. It's a little bit more open to interpretation. You can't really put a cold, hard fact on it unless you can talk to Aaron Dempsey Bowden himself. And again, Aaron Dempsey Bowden, if you're listening to this, I would very much love to pick your brain about this. But the why is interesting, too. I think that Aaron Dempsey Bowden is a very meticulous person, does a lot of research. We can tell that from everything that he's done uh, and picked out in here, especially when we were talking about the burial practices and the location. But the why is interesting uh, because why would we even have this information in front of us? We're talking about the master of mankind Spoiler alert here, I'm going to get uh, reveal a major plot point. And if you haven't read that book, maybe you want to uh, just end the episode right here. But if you have read that book, or, or uh, um, you're okay for a major plot point, then um, here's, here we go. You've got a, a fair warning through the master of mankind we relive significant eras in the emperor's life starting with the murder of his uncle and the realization uh, that there's a problem here that we need to deal with it he's just a child at this point he's a child of significant power and awareness uh, that he's completely different from everybody else why would you even show this to uh, a custodies? Well, he's preparing uh, that person to have a lifetime of duty to do something he doesn't want to do. And what Ra doesn't want to do is be apart from the emperor. He's been programmed genetically to unfailing execute um, any 
order he's been given so long as it uh, protects the emperor and his duty is to the emperor to be near the emperor to be always within the ability to reach him and help him in any way that's needed and he's being commanded or will be commanded at the finale of this book to leave to leave the Emperor's side, to never see him again, to go as far away as possible in order to protect the Emperor. So what he's being shown over all this uh, book here, these little vignettes of the Emperor's life, is what does it take to have a lonely eternity of doing anything you need to in order to reach the end goal and for Ra the end goal is the protection of the Emperor and he's been genetically programmed down to his DNA it's in his marrow to always be at the Emperor's side and you know if he just ordered him leave me alone um, he would probably feel uh, like he did something extremely wrong and it would probably be like one of those um, original Star Trek episodes you know where Captain Kirk uh, plays around with a, a rogue artificial intelligence computer and he tricks it into uh, an order or a logic loop that it just can't compute well, you said, uh, I must always tell the truth, but I'm being forced to lie. And then he just explodes. The custodies won't just explode if he's in a logic loop, but it will cause conflict. So this entire book, the story of Ra and his experience of the emperor's life through his eyes as the emperor presents it to him is to mentally prepare Ra to get around uh, what's going to be the genetic logic loop that he's going to have in his marrow at the end of this book. Now, custodians don't really have free will. Uh, Aaron Dembski Bowden knows this. Everybody in the Warhammer, um, you know, author base and their lores uh, masters know this you all know this so why would we even need to prepare a custodies to do a job they would just do it it would be impossible for them to not do it so i i think we're reliving this por uh, portion of his life as the emperor uh, through ra's eyes through the custodies eyes because the Emperor is trying to uh, impart uh, what's effectively a uh, parable. A parable about long-term duty that goes beyond just a few hundred years. A duty that started 40,000 years ago, 45,000 years ago, 
a duty that has to be stoically done even against um, the objections of everybody around you uh, a duty that has to be done uh, despite all odds a duty that has to be done completely alone if needs be now Ra would do this anyways but we're the Emperor knows this is such an important duty that he's showing Ra uh, this portion of his life and other portions of his life so Ra can have an understanding of the significance of the task that he's being uh, mentally prepared to do even though he doesn't know that that's coming he would do it anyways we would all do it anyways if we were uh, incapable of disobeying an order if we had no free will but it's one thing to have no free will and to be forced to do your job like a slave and it's another thing to uh, want to do your job because you see the end picture because you can see the entire picture you can see the plan you can see the end result it's not just an order take this rock from A to B you have no idea why you're being asked to take the rock from A to B uh, but uh, there's 20,000 other people taking their rocks from A to B and all those rocks are going to get put together and it's going to build a tower and that tower is going to be used uh, to defend ourselves um, 300 years later well now we know why taking the rock from A to B is important and we know uh, that it's going to save civilization to do it you might work a little harder to get that done even though you were going to do it anyways well geez do you need me to take two rocks from A to B let me do that let me go the extra mile now this is as close as the Emperor ever gets to explaining his plan in any detail I know it seems kind of silly uh, he's got his custodies with him uh, they would be uh, incapable of betraying him they were incapable of questioning an order same thing with uh, Malkador uh, he's not incapable uh, of betraying the Emperor I'm sure he could but he's devoted utterly to him but even Malkador does not know the Emperor's plans it's all through the heresy little hints of it here and there that uh, the Emperor knows what the he has to do uh, coming up when he has to face Horus but nobody else knows that step is going to happen and I don't know if how many people have read all the books but the running uh, blip through almost all the books is the game of regicide that either the Emperor is playing with Malkador or he's uh, playing it with John Grammaticus in a in a in a psychically connected dream or Malkador is playing it um, with himself with himself or it's coming up 
in uh, the tarot cards. But it is always the same. Um, Horus wins unless the Emperor takes the field. And the only one who knows that step is the Emperor. And he never tells anybody about it. And, uh, you know, not everybody's into, uh, you know, the final uh, two books where Horace gets his due. Uh, again, just a minor spoiler here, but Malkador comes out and says it um, when he's waiting. Will, will my king finally tell me his plans? And even then, the emperor doesn't tell him shit. So this is as close as the Emperor ever gets to telling anybody what the plan is. And Ra is the only person who gets this piece of information. So I think that that's the whole point of Master of Mankind and these little vignettes of the Emperor's life uh, that Ra sees, these snippets, true or not. Again, remember, Aaron Dembski-Bowden tells us um, this is an unreliable narration. You can take it or not for the purposes of our uh, podcast for taking it as true. He's reliving thousands and thousands of years of the Emperor's life in little snippets of important realizations. And the very first realization the Emperor has is this. Quote, the boy turned the skull over in his hands, just as he had done in the hut before. This is where I first learned the truth behind our species, this very eve, as I held my father's skull and considered how to restore his features according to our burial rites. When I learned of his murder, it was a revelation into the heart of all mankind. This is a world that has no need of you yet, Ra. It has no need for imperial bodyguards, for it is a world that knows nothing of emperors or warlords or conquerors, and therefore it knows nothing of unity, nothing of law. End quote. Now this is where uh, Aaron Dembski Bowden's definitely taken some artistic license. Uh, if you remember in the first episode, Otzi. He uh, met an untimely end, and we know that it's not fiction. He definitely uh, was murdered, and we know that the Emperor's own ancestors, uh, the uh, Yamnaya culture, erased the Varna civilization as they were moving out of the Pontic steppes and into Europe, into Anatolia. And we know the city of Troy at this time has limestone fortifications. You don't build that if there is no war to worry about or warlords. And we know at the same time, even though Babylon doesn't really exist yet other than as a village, there is the Uruk period that I talked about in the last episode where there's a lot of warfare and warlords going on and going around and 
um, the results of that. And we also know that the people who will be the kings of Egypt, they're getting pushed out of what's becoming the Sahara Desert. It's the Sahara Savanna. It's the end of its wet period and it's turning into a desert. There's less food, less farmland. Those people are getting pushed out of there and moving into Egypt and the Nile Delta area. And they're going to conquer the people there very soon. So warfare definitely exists. And it definitely exists only a few hundred kilometers away from the emperor's village right now. And his ancestors definitely murdered a lot of people. So warfare is a real thing, even at this time. Warlords are a real thing, even at this time. Now, to the best of our knowledge, he was right. There are no uh, kings that we have records of. Doesn't mean they don't exist. But there's no real kings or kingdoms yet. Not that we know. We know Egypt's coming. We know uh, the Hittite uh, kings, uh, uh, priest kings are coming in a few hundred years. And we know the Babylonian kings are coming in just a few hundred years. That's the era that he's talking about there. Just a few hundred years later when recorded history really kicks in. But like I said last episode and the episode before that, people are people. I think it's probably always been going on. It's just as technology has improved, as food yields have improved, as climate has improved, that's enabled us to get more and more ambitious instead of raiding the community here and there. We can raid the community every year. We can force them to become our client states. And that's happening just at this time, at this period. And the emperor is mentally preparing himself to deal with that. This is the time that the emperor comes to the realization that we need, uh, or he needs, to dominate it. Not just to stop the one murder, but he is aware of the warp at this time, the echo of the first murder, and he's preparing Ra to be the immortal forever prison of that demon because there's a duty that has to be done. It's duty eternal. It's duty that lasts for forever. And even in death, his duty does not end. This has been the end uh, of our first series of exploring the historical appearances of the God Emperor of Mankind in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Thank you very much for joining me. Our next episode, uh, we are going to be focusing on uh, uh, 
our next couple season or episode series that we're working on is going to be Bronze Age Greece uh, and also Bronze Age uh, Babylonian. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you again uh, for our next series. Thank you.